Uh, We'll be in Romans chapter 5. And about a month ago when Steve uh, asked me to teach, he asked if this is a passage that I'd be interested in speaking on. And I got to think, I'm like, wow, it's been about three months since Steve taught through this exact same passage. And I'm like, that's okay, you know, I was back with the kids on that Sunday, so I, I don't have Steve's message rattling around in my head. Um, so this will be a, a good new uh, word that uh, God has given through me to, to share with you guys today. And then this morning, in uh, the, the time we had with the uh, men, uh, three, three of the themes, three of the uh, messages, concepts that I want to talk about today came up uh, with the group. So for all the men in the room who are back there this morning, this is not... Uh, speaking because of you, this is uh, probably speaking for you and uh, something for you to hear. Uh, but I think that just reiterated that uh, there was definitely something uh, here uh, that needed to be heard a second time. And then what's funny is Haley asked me this morning, uh, Daddy, what are you teaching on this morning? What are you teaching this morning? And I thought about it for a second. I go, I'm teaching a vocabulary lesson. And she just kind of looked at me. And then Hannah looks at me and goes, or maybe it was Haley, she goes, are you going to be able to read all the words? And, <laughs> I got to thinking, as you look through this passage, there's about seven key words. And if you were to write down like the top 30 words of the Christian faith, I would bet you that these seven words would be almost every, on everybody's list. And I was like, wow, this really is going to be a vocabulary lesson today. And really look at how these words all tie together um, and all really uh, drive us to that life uh, with Christ and that life because of Christ. So we will go ahead, and um, I did switch this morning into the Skinny Black Bible. I figured since it was going to be such a vocabulary lesson, we'll be switching to some different passages. It'd be good to have a, a, a Bible there. I can call out the uh, page numbers. Um, so we'll uh, jump right in. So Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 1, therefore. Now that is not one of the vocabulary lessons, but we always know that when we see the word therefore, we have to stop. Now, I'm pretty sure Paul knew that sometimes we might be a lazy Christian, and we may not look back at why a word is there for. So he goes ahead and he just tells us and saves us from having to flip back. And he says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. So we'll stop there. So there's the therefore. So justification through faith. But we will go ahead and we will step back and we will understand what Paul has been teaching up until this point. So if we look back, starting in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul is teaching to the Romans that it is not by your works that you are saved. There is nothing that you can do in and of yourself that can can save you. It is only because of faith uh, that you can be saved. And in fact, in chapter 3, verse 20, right before Paul gets into this section, he actually tells us what the purpose of the law is. He says, uh, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. So we have to always remember the purpose of the law was never to save us. The purpose of the law was to make us realize that we are sinners, to make us realize that we have sin in our lives, and to make us realize that we have to have a, a savior for our lives. So Paul starts right there by saying, this is what the purpose of the law is. It's not so you can be saved. So let's move on to how you can be saved or how you're, how you're saved. Because it's not by work and it's not by the law. Now, you always think if you're going to think, well, let's just look here before I jump into that. Let's just look at what he says looking through uh, the rest of 21 um, through the uh, end of chapter 4. 
bold print above chapter 21 should say something along righteousness through faith. And I think we all understand in here, one of the big vocabulary words for the day will be faith. It is because of faith that we are able to be saved. It is because of faith that we have this new life in Christ. In fact, there's a whole chapter talking about faith somewhere in, let's say, Hebrews 11, something about a Hall of Faith chapter. And I'm pretty sure, because I looked extensively, I never found a passage called the Hall of Works or the Hall of Good Deeds or the Hall of Following the Law. Um, So I think there's something to be said there. It is because of faith uh, that we are all saved. And in chapter 4 of Romans, verse 3, I think it's a very common passage for us. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Obviously, that's quoting a verse out of Genesis. So once again, we're reminded that faith is why and how we are saved. And I think the best, this is kind of a cool definition I came up with, but faith is believing, not behaving. And I think oftentimes a lot of us struggle with our faith. We feel like we have to do more in order to have stronger or better faith. Or we have to um, have faith plus something. And, and what we have to understand that faith is just strictly be- believing. Believing in God. Believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It is nothing about behavior. It's nothing about what we will do. So if we can, get, if we can move forward with that understanding that faith is believing and not behaving, then we can... Someone wrote notes on my... Uh, on my uh, someone wrote a note on me right here. That's pretty funny. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, if we can move forward understanding what uh, faith is, then we can look at the second part of chapter 5, verse 1, where it says we've been justified through faith. So now we have another of our big words, and that's justified or justification. And I think all of us in here have heard the definition that we have of justification, which is just as if I've never sinned. So what does that, what does that really look like, and what does that mean? And so I wanted to dive in a little bit to justification. So once again, keeping within Paul and keeping close to where we're at right now, I'm just flipping back. Uh, one page, and I'm just going to read chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Hopefully all of us have uh, at least recognized the uh, Romans 3, 23. Uh, But we are all falling short of God's grace, but we have all been justified. Then Paul talks about justification again in chapter 4, verse 25. So the last verse, right before we jump into chapter 5, and it says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So once again, we're understanding here that justification has really nothing to do with us. Justification is all because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Justification is is a gift of grace. Once again, it is something that we do not deserve. We do not deserve to be justified. But what we have to understand is that if we believe, when we have faith, we then receive that grace, that gift. And one of the gifts that we receive is justification. Justification is a one-time decision when you believe. It's a one-time declaration that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, that I am a sinner and need a Savior. 
It's a one-time declaration. It happens instantly. The idea of justification comes back, or could be referenced back to uh, the Jewish court system, where you'd have two people uh, come up in front of the judge, and he'd hear both sides. And at the end of it, the, the judge would... Um, agree with one of the two sides, and therefore he would say, uh, he would justify that side. And if it was on the side of the defendant, then you would have what we know today as the innocent verdict. So what we can think of justification is we are innocent now in God's sight. We're innocent of the sin that was in our lives. We have a full pardon of all of our sins. The other cool thing about justification is it's a guarantee of heaven. Because we are justified and because we are part of all of our sins, how does God see us? God sees us as that justified person. Therefore, when we stand before him to get into heaven, it is, I see you. You believe you're justified. I don't see your sin. I see my son, Jesus Christ, in you. We are fully pardoned from our sins. So we have that guarantee of heaven. So we know that if we have faith through justification, what then? What do we do with that? How do we go about living that life? Because it's not just enough to say I was justified and then just sit ho-hum, okay, I'm justified. So you have to think, what now? Well, after that justification, you have another one of the great words, and that would be sanctification. We are now called to live that sanctified life. We are now called to live that holy life, set apart. That's what we do once we're justified. And it's a full, it's not a one-time, justification is that one-time act. That's not what sanctification is. Sanctification is an ongoing, set-apart, holy life where we try to become more and more like Christ Jesus every day of our lives. But let's think about that. We know we're justified by faith, so we live a sanctified life. But we know that there are some benefits. There are some results. There's some blessings that result from this justification. There's some results of this one-time-only decision and belief that we have. And so I want to look at Psalm 32, verse 1. I had it bookmarked so I could get there quickly, but I will uh, hold off for just a second. It's on page 523 for those of you following along. And we'll just look at verses 1 and 2. And we'll understand that because of justification, we have blessings that come along with that. We are blessed because we're the ones whose transgressions are forgiven. We're blessed because our sins are covered. Blessed, verse 2, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and, whose, and, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So we know that great blessings come when we are justified. So let's look at what chapter 5 of Romans tells us about these blessings that come through justification. So we pick up in the second part of verse 1, after it says that we've been justified through faith, faith, the first blessing is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't usually want to get caught up a lot in the semantics of specific words here, but I do think it's important here where it says peace with God. It does not say that we have the peace of God. I do believe that that is something that is separate than what is being discussed here. This is discussing the peace with God. And so what you have to look at is prior to our justification, 
prior to us believing, we had a life that was characterized by sin. We lived in our sin nature, you could say. Now, living in that sin nature, you are at war against God because sin is at war against God. Because the devil, because Satan who uses sin is at war against God. So if you're at war against God, you cannot be at peace with God. And so you understand that this is what we used to be. John 3.36 talks a little bit about when you're at war with God, what do you risk? You risk God's wrath. And he says here, and you guys don't have to turn to every one of these, just make some notes here. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Once again, God's wrath does not, no longer remain on us once we have peace with God. If we don't have peace with, with, with God, we continue to be under God's wrath. Luckily for us, we have been saved from that. You can also think if sin is at war against God, you can use the word enemy. And you could say that we're an enemy of God when we're full of sin. And I think enemy is something that you, we can talk about and is a, probably a phrase that you hear often uh, through the Bible. And you're at enemy with God because you're fighting against him. Not necessarily you, but your spirit. The spirit that is characterized by that sin is fighting against God. And so I do want us all to turn to Colossians chapter 1. And we'll be picking up in verse 21. Page 1105, if you're in the... The Bible, and I'll give you guys just a second to get here. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Now there's a lot to unpack in, in this verse, but I want you to understand here that it states, once again, the idea of we were enemies with God, but because of Christ's physical body, we have been reconciled. And reconciliation, I think, is another one of those big vocabulary words that we would write down of the Christian faith. So what does reconciled mean? What does it mean to go through reconciliation? I can tell you that I think there is a lot of parallels between reconciliation and justification. Paul talks more about reconciliation in the end of today's uh, verses in chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. And I wasn't going to skip all the way to the end, but I think since we brought up the idea of peace with God, you can't have peace with God without understanding that you're reconciled to God. The opposite of being an enemy of God, or the opposite of being at war with God, is being reconciled to God. I wrote it down as reconciliation means atonement and fellowship with God. Atonement, another one of the big vocabulary words, is the at one You're at one with God. You're reconciled. You are so close to God 
That is the exact opposite of being at war with him or being his enemy. And so Paul, at the end of this section, in verse 9, he says, Since we've now been justified with his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So once again, talking about justification, we're saved and we no longer have to have God's wrath. Then in verse 10, he says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So now when Paul starts talking about reconciliation, he says we were God's enemies, we were reconciled by his son, and now we are saved into eternal life. And so once again, I think if you look at the parallels right there between justification and reconciliation, you can see that they are really, um, really one and the same. Just as if I've never sinned is just like having that closeness or that, that oneness with God. You can't have one without the other, honestly. And then he says, not only this in chapter or in verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we now have received reconciliation. So once again, we're reminded that it is not because of our good works. It's not because of anything that we do that we get this reconciliation. It is through Christ that we receive this reconciliation. It's through believing in the act that happened on the cross. It's through believing that God sent Jesus as his only son. So through that belief, we get justification and we get reconciliation. Once we're reconciled, I said that we're, we're so close. Uh, you know, every, a lot of mornings in our house, um, I always ask the girls um, as they're getting ready for the, today, what are they going to do to benefit Team Davis? Right, Hannah? I talk a lot about Team Davis because there's a closeness in the family that we have. And I, think that, I thought that analogy was really, uh, really resonated me, with me here. When we have peace with God and we're reconciled to God, we really need to ask ourselves every day, are we focused on team God? Are we focused on supporting God and having that close communication with God? Or are we doing things that are going to separate us from that, from that team? And I think one of the cool things about having a team is you oftentimes talk the same language. If you ever look at a football huddle, uh, they get into a huddle and they say a play that probably no one else and no one else who hears it's going to understand. Uh, you know, if you are watching a basketball game, they're going to give some uh, they're going to give some sign of what to of what to do. If you're on a baseball diamond, you're going to see a third base coach do something like this, and it's not because mosquitoes are trying to bite him or something. It's because he's communicating out to his team, and so we are all on God's team. And I think that's really cool because we have access to God's team. And that just really went right into verse 2, where it, back to chapter 5 there. It says, through whom we have gained access, once again, by faith, into the grace that we now stand. So once we know that we have that peace with God, we are on team God, we have access. It's only because of this relationship that we have with God, that we can have access to him. The only way to have this access, though, was because of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, I think we forget that we have access to great power. We have access to a great father who wants to hear from us. I mean, what good would it be to be on a team and never talk to one another? 
What good would it be to be on a team and never communicate with one another? And so once again, I think one of the benefits of justification, the benefits of this reconciliation, is that we have access to the Father. We can take anything to the Father, and he is glad to hear from us. He is glad to listen to us. And I think oftentimes we just don't take enough advantage of this benefit that we have in our Christian lives to say, you know what, we're team God. Maybe God is every position that we have, and we're just lucky to be standing on the sideline of team God. And some days we're in there participating in team God. We're the active running back, letting God hand us off the ball, the, the ball of life, and letting us run through this life. But either way, we cannot do it if we don't have access to God, if we're not talking to God on a daily basis, hearing from him what his play for us is today. We have access to the Father. We have access to grace. And it says there that this is where we now stand. And this standing refers to a permanent position. This is not a position that we stand in right now that can be taken away from us. This is not a standing that uh, we can lose. Uh, This is not a standing that changes at any point. This is a permanent standing. It is a permanent position that we have with God. Anytime we want to come to him, we have that standing now as believers in Jesus Christ because of the cross at any point. Now, I will tell you, um, some days we might not feel like we're standing. Uh, Some days we might be limping into this position. Sometimes we might be crawling Uh, into this position. And you know what? Being down on our hands and knees crawling is not a bad place to be. In fact, that's probably sometimes a really good place to be. Sometimes we might be standing but stumbling. And oftentimes what we're stumbling over is stuff that we put in our lives. But we know whether we're limping, crawling, stumbling, no matter what, where we end up is standing in a position of access to God. Standing in position to a father who wants that communication with us. Standing in a position of a father who wants that relationship. And, you know, I think all of us come from different pasts. And I know all of us come from different pasts. And growing up, all of us are taught differently on how to have relationships. All of us have different experiences that impact how we have relationships. And all of, those, all of that experience comes into play when we have to reconcile, different term of the use reconciliation here, but when we have to understand in our minds what it means to be in that relationship with God, what it means to, be in access, to have access to God. And we bring all that past relationship, um, sometimes junk, into our lives. For some of us, we might have relationships from our childhood that we never talk to anymore. We might have relationships from our past that we talked to every day for 10 years, and then we stopped talking to them. Uh, We may not have had all that many of great relationships in our lives growing up, and now we're trying to have a relationship with God. We're trying to understand what does it mean to have access to him. And I think that's why sometimes it's so hard for us to understand um, truly how amazing God is and that it doesn't matter where we've come from. It doesn't matter our past. God's there for us, and we have to 
reconstruct the thinkings of our past, reconstruct what we think a relationship is, and understand that no matter what we do, God is there every day. God is there. We have access to God every day, and we need to learn to reach out to him and stand in that permanent position as his uh, perfect bride and pull and, and dwell on, on that relationship to him. And if we do that, what will become of that? So we know that we have justification that gives us this access, that gives us this close relationship, reconciled relationship to him. And then what does Paul say? That we have hope, at the end of verse 2, in the glory of God. And so let me read the whole, uh, let me read, read the whole uh, section here. So, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast... Or another word you might have in there is rejoice. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And I think that word rejoicing is something that we, we lack, maybe. We don't know how to rejoice in that relationship uh, that we have uh, with the Father. And it's interesting, because I had to actually look up in the dictionary what the word rejoice meant. Because I was like, well, I know what joy means, but does rejoice mean just to have more and joy over and over again, like repeat or something? And so I looked up the word rejoice, and what the dictionary said is it means greater joy, greater pleasure, or greater happiness. And I thought, wow, what an amazing definition of how we should be um, reacting or living our lives knowing that we have been justified. We should be rejoicing Everything in our lives should be greater because we're serving the greatest God there is. So let everything in our life be around rejoicing, greater happiness, greater pleasure, greater joy. And then I found a a Greek translation for the word rejoice. And it said, favorably disposed to God's grace. And I was like, wow, that's really, really powerful there. We should be rejoicing because we are favorably disposed to God's grace. Once again, that grace is that gift, that gift on the cross, that gift of justification. And we are on the favorable side of it. We are favorably disposed, disposed, that is a mouthful, favorably disposed to God's grace. Let us rejoice in that. And what does that mean? We rejoice in because we have that grace and that glory of God, as Paul states there. And so then when you really think about the glory of God, what does the glory of God mean to you? Throughout the Bible, you'll see the word glory of God or the phrase glory of God used in many different ways. And I wanted to kind of pull out a couple of different uh, uses in, uh, of the glory of God phrase. All of them pointing in the same direction, all of them pointing to God, but sometimes you'll see the word glory of God referring to God's greatness and how amazing God is. Sometimes you'll see the phrase glory of God used in a little bit of a different way. So if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Page 1074 in the Skinny Black Bible.
And in verse 31, it says, so chapter 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So in this instance, it's saying that we should, it's, it's causing us to be in a position of honoring God. So sometimes glory of God can be referring to God's greatness. Sometimes it can be referring to how we should honor God in all that we do. And then it talks about the hope of the glory of God. And we know that we fall short of this glory. And we have to think, well, what glory are we falling short of? And that is referring back to the Garden of Eden. There was this perfect glory of God, this perfect relationship back in the Garden of Eden. And then due to sin, we've all fallen short of that glory. But why are we rejoicing? What do we have to rejoice in? Is we know that we have a future glory promised to us. A future glory, to use a word from earlier, guaranteed to us in heaven. And that, my friends, is worth rejoicing in. That is worth giving a greater happiness, a greater pleasure than anything we will ever know in this life. Let us rejoice in that hope of of glory of God. And so, you know what? Oftentimes, we could just stop right there. You know what? I've believed. I have faith. I'm justified. I'm reconciled. I'm standing forever in this permanent place with access to the Savior. And I'm just going to rejoice in Him. Everything's going to be good I'm going to believe and honor how great God is, and life is just going to be great. I'm going to end right there. I'm going to go eat some smoked brisket that Christopher made for us this morning, and it's just going to be great, and everything in our life is going to be perfect. And oftentimes, that's where we want to stop in our walk. Oftentimes, we want to stop right there with the rejoicing in the glory of God, rejoicing in the goodness of God, rejoicing in everything that's working out well in our lives. Unfortunately, that's, that's not the reality. Uh, it's not the reality of what the Christian life is. It's not the reality of what the Christian walk is. And it's the harder part of the Christian life to teach. It's the harder part of the Christian life to, under, to, to understand. And if you're wanting to convince someone to become a Christian, uh, first of all, you can do all the convincing you want. It's, nothing by, it's not by anything you'll say. It's only by the power of God. But if you're trying to convince someone, you may only want to talk about all the goodness, all the things to rejoice in. You're not going to want to talk about the next section here that Paul says. And I think we all know what that, uh, that big word's going to be coming up here. So in verse 3, it says, not only it's, Paul says, not only um, rejoice in the glory of God, but also in glory in our sufferings. You're telling me that we need to glory in our sufferings? Um, that's hard to do. In fact, I'm pretty sure, I know most of you in this room, I'm pretty sure none of us have mastered the art of um, glorying in our suffering. And it doesn't say glory if you have sufferings. Um, it's pretty much a guarantee In fact, if we want any more of a guarantee that we will have sufferings in our Christian life, then we can just go ahead and we can quote uh, Jesus. Because Jesus is very clear that we will have 
uh, we will have sufferings in our in our Christian walk. Uh, as John, or as it says in John, uh, chapter sixteen, verse thirty-three, Jesus says, "I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart; I have overcome the world." Once again, Jesus says, "You will have trouble. It is a certainty that you will have trouble." As a Christian. And so I wanted to do a little bit of research on the idea of suffering. And it's interesting because when I started looking at suffering, um, I was going to find verses that talked about you, w- you will have hardship, you will have trouble, it won't be easy, you will stumble. And I was actually going out looking for a lot of verses to uh, back up the point of how. Uh, this life is going to be difficult and that we can't be um, lying to ourselves thinking that it won't be difficult. But you want to hear something really, really amazing? As I went out and I looked for verses on suffering, uh, as I looked for verses on trials, as I looked for verses on hardship, every one of the verses I found immediately, either later on in that same verse, sometimes because of the way the the structure of the verse was, sometimes it happened beforehand, maybe it was the verse right after, but every one of the verses I read on suffering, every one of them followed up with some idea of joy or some idea of a promise that God has in our lives. And I was just totally taken back by that. So I want to reread where I just read to you in John chapter 16, verse 33, and notice this. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. A verse that talks about you will have trouble, but it's immediately followed with a promise that we can hold on to. And so without having us go through all about 12 verses that I looked at, Um, You're going to have to take my word and trust me on this one. I do want us to look at four of them, though, just to get this understanding that there's so much joy that can come out of our suffering. When you think of suffering or trials, probably many of us think of the book of James, chapter 1. So if you would, let's go ahead and turn there. Uh, It is on page 1135. And in fact, it's such a book, or it's such a verse on trials and temptations that um, whoever decides to break up our book into chapters and put little bold headings for us, uh, put the words trials and temptations uh, at the top of this uh, section for us. So if you're ever wanting to read about trials and temptations, this might be a good place to go. But I'm going to read, uh, starting there in verse 2. And you don't even have to get more than four words into this. Before he even talks about the trials and temptations that you will have, what does it say? It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So once again, it's not saying focus on our sufferings. Be downtrodden because of our sufferings. Be depressed because of our sufferings. It's saying consider it joy 
rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, I'm going to get to perseverance here in a section, or in a session, session in a second, because perseverance is one of the characteristics that talks about uh, that suffering produces. So we'll not get into it right now. But once again, you see pure joy in your suffering because, and it's because something is going to be produced in your life. If you look at verse 12, it says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So once again, under the trials, you are blessed and you have a reward, a crown, an eternal crown that you will wear because of this trial or this suffering. Let's turn now to Psalm chapter 34. Page 525, for those of you who want to get there quickly in the the Black Bible. Psalm chapter 34, verse 19. The righteous person will have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. So we will have troubles, but the Lord will deliver us from every one of them. May not deliver them how we think we should be delivered from them. May not deliver us how we want to be delivered from them. But we have to understand that there's a promise that the Lord is there with us through the entire suffering, through the entire trial, and he will bring us through. We're going to jump back over to 1 Peter. I told you this is going to be the worst part of flipping back and forth, but I want you to see that when we talk about suffering, it's always followed by the word joy or followed with a, word, with a promise. So we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 4. It'll be page 1142 in the Skinny Black Bible. Page 1142. I'm going to go slower here because I know it's the last time there was people still flipping as I was reading it. I really want you guys to see these promises that we have. The bold print above verse 12, at least for, for me in this Bible, reads, Suffering for being a Christian. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to you or that has come on you to test you as though something strange has happened to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal. However, if you suffer as a Christian, verse 16, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. 
For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Those who suffer, verse 19, according to God's will, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. There is a lot here, but we have to understand that commit ourselves to God. Rejoice because of our suffering. We read a lot about, the, about martyrs. I don't think any of us fully understand what suffering means until we're maybe in the shoes of Paul and understand the suffering that he had to go through. Uh, maybe the suffering of Stephen and being the first martyr. And how no matter what suffering is happening, we're finding that joy. We're holding on to that promise. Final place that we'll look to, to talk about this suffering and the uh, resulting joy and promise is in 2 Timothy. So just flip back to your left a couple of, couple of sections. You'll get to your T books there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this, this section here, starting in chapter 10, is Paul's final charge to Timothy. And it says, You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. And this next section should be very, very familiar to us if we've been listening to some of what Steve's been teaching to us. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Picks up in verse 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those who have, whom you've learned it from, and how from infancy you have been known, excuse me, you have known the Holy Spirit, which was able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed, and in verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So once again, as Paul's talking about suffering, he talks about the suffering that he endured and why, why did he have to go through it? It's because it's our way of being equipped for every good work that God has for us in our life. So let's rejoice because God is working in you. Rejoice because God is working in me. He has a plan to grow us. He has a plan to sanctify us. We cannot be going through that sanctification without suffering. So let's look at what it says the suffering produces. So back to Romans 5, very end of verse 3, it says, Suffering produces perseverance. Some of your translations out there may actually have the word patience uh, in it. I thought that was interesting, because when I think of perseverance and patience, I don't always think of the same word. Uh, So when I think of perseverance, I think of endurance. Uh, You're running the race. Uh, You're having to remain 
in Christ through all of these sufferings. And that's the perseverance that you're trying to, uh, that, you're, that, that you're producing in your life. That's the, that's, that's the perseverance that you're learning through a suffering. Sometimes when I think about patience, I think about waiting for God. Sometimes you have to wait. You pray to God and he might give you a yes, he might give you a no, or he may tell you to wait and to be patient. And I'm always reminded that whether it's perseverance, patience, or any of the other um, maybe adjectives that uh, are produced in our lives, if we want patience and we pray to God for patience, God just doesn't freely give us patience. God's going to give us opportunities to be patient. So if you're having a suffering right now and you're thinking, man, I really need to be patient or you're learning patience from it, Maybe somebody prayed for you for patience. Maybe you prayed for yourself that you need more patience in your life. And so God gave you an opportunity. Call it a suffering, if you will, a trial. God gave you something in your life so that you could learn patience out of it. Without having too much of a play on words, sometimes when the suffering is going on, you need to be the patient because God's working in your life. You need to allow him to cut on you, to mold you, to repair something in your life. And the result of that may be patience, may be perseverance, but regardless, you know God's working in your life. Then it says perseverance produces character. Here's what's cool, is that this character that we're talking about is a God-like character. It's a character that makes us more sanctified, more like God. It's a character that has been proven, that has been tested, a a character that has been refined through our experiences. You cannot have this character that's being referred here if you haven't first had perseverance through the suffering or patience through the suffering. The character that we're talking about here, this God-like character, is a character that comes as a result of time through the suffering. That's the character that we should be striving for in our life. And then finally, picking up in verse 4, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. This hope that we have now is stronger because of our patience. It's stronger because of the experience that we have had. And when we think about the word hope, it's been used a couple times throughout this passage, but it's not like what we have in today's usage, in today's society. Um, you know, the football season, NFL football season is starting, for those of you who may not know. Um, in fact, there was actually a game a couple nights ago. It meant absolutely nothing. As in reality, most football games don't mean anything in eternity. But as football starts, I can stand up here and say, I hope the Chiefs win the World Series. Nope, I hope the Chiefs... <laughs> no, World Series is coming. I hope the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. Uh, but that's a totally different type of hope than what we're hoping for in God. The hope that we're hoping for in God has no uncertainty. We know this because our hope is because of a certain act that already has been performed. It is certain. Our hope is certain 
but maybe it's not yet realized. I mean, we have a hope in an eternal home. We know that it's certain, but we won't realize it till that day that we're there. It's certain, but not yet realized. This hope helps us face the realities of life. And it's because of this hope for the future, this hope in a living God and not in man, that we can get through these sufferings that we have. And once we have this hope, what does it produce in us? Verse 5. It's a hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So our hope can be assured or can be reconfirmed because the Holy Spirit is in us. How do we know that? Because we have this love that's overflowing out of us. Love is what can bring us through the trial. Not just our love for God, but God's love for us. That's what will bring us through the trial. That's what will bring us through the suffering. And what we always have to remember, and why we always have to have confidence that love can bring us through, is because God's love is not based on me. It's not based on you. It's not based on anything we can do. God's love is based on his character. It's based on who he is. He is love. And how do we know this? Well, we know this because in verse 6, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, so it was God's timing, first of all, not our timing. We were powerless. You might think of that as we were sinless. We did not have the power to save ourselves. We did not have the power to get to God. So at just that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But verse 8, but God demonstrates his love, his own love for us, like this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That death on the cross, that is... That is the grace that we get so freely. That is the gift that we get so freely. The death on the cross and then the resurrection and the returning to life or coming to life three days later, that is hope. This is what is worth rejoicing. God showing his love for us, this was the greatest, most powerful way that anyone could show love for another. That is love. So it's interesting because I had, a, I had a scripture that I was, or a passage I was ready to teach on in case Steve did ask me to, to teach. And this was not it. And as I got here talking about the words hope and love, I was reminded of the, the, the passage I was actually going to teach on originally. And that was a passage back in 1 Peter. And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The reason for the hope that we have is love. 
plain and simple. Love that was shown on the cross. Love that was shown by sending Jesus down to be man. Our entire hope is based off of love. It is what brings us through the sufferings. Without love, I mean, really, what are we? We're, we're nothing without love. And so I think I just ask today, wherever you're at, maybe you're at the very beginning. Maybe you're struggling with that faith. And maybe you're struggling with understanding that faith is uh, believing and faith is not behavior. Maybe that's where you're at today and you need to fully come into an understanding that uh, God's love for you did it all and all you have to do is believe in him. You don't have to do anything else. So maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you've already believed and you've been justified and you're now living a life of sanctification and you just need to find joy in those sufferings. Because sometimes in those sufferings, it can give us our strongest testimony. Maybe in our sufferings, we're doing it because God's going to place someone in our lives that we need to speak to. But if we don't have joy, we're going to miss that opportunity. So maybe we just need to have more joy and rejoice in that suffering that's going on in our life right now. Or maybe we just need our lives to be characterized more by love. Love in everything that we do. Love in our speech. Love in our actions. Love in our relationship with God because we're willing to commune with him. We're willing to accept that reconciliation with him and accept that love that he has for us. So I think no matter where we're at today, whether it's needing that faith, whether it's suffering through or uh, being able to uh, persevere through that suffering and that life of sanctification or living a life characterized by love, Paul here was saying and talking to us that base our lives in love and we will get through it, and we will be better off because of it. And once again, it's not because of anything that we do, but we have to remember it's all because of what was already done for us.